Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Centrist neoliberal Democrats are seeing increasing primary challenges from the progressive left. That has led to a number of high-profile upsets, including most recently Jamal Bowman unseating longtime Congress member Elliot Engel in New York. It is rare, however, to see such a contest right on the November ballot. Well, this year is an exception when Nancy Pelosi, the House Majority Leader and the country's most powerful Democrat, faces a challenge from Democratic Socialist Shahid Buttar, who is running on a staunch progressive platform. Shahid Buttar joins me now. Shahid, welcome to Pushback. Let me start by asking you to address people, probably not many people who watch Pushback, but certainly many people in Nancy Pelosi's constituency who see her as an effective leader. She has a reputation for being tough, for getting things done. So why challenge her? Why take her on now? And why are you a better candidate? She is tough and she's very effective at getting things done for Wall Street. And the substance of our critique, the reason I'm running, is that we, the people of the United States, have been unrepresented in the Democratic Party for entirely too long. We see voices in the squad that have been willing to defend the future in the face of the predatory corporate past that we aim to shrug off. Uh, and we see Nancy Pelosi, unfortunately, standing with the past and constraining the future. And that's why I'm here. That's why uh, the squad has emerged in Congress. And I'm eager to join it and expand them after replacing Pelosi this November. Pelosi's handling of the response to the pandemic. What would you have done differently? The very first thing is to finally embrace universal health care. It was an imperative even before the pandemic. But the pandemic makes it even more inescapably clear that we can't treat public health like a commodity. Public health is a public good that requires public investment. It in requires us to invest in ensuring that all of our neighbors can get the care and the medicine that they need. But not only because that's the humane thing to do, which it was before the pandemic, but now in the wake of the pandemic, it's also the self-interested thing to do. We can't have public health unless our neighbors can get the testing, care, and medicine that they need. And at the moment, cost remains a barrier. That's senseless. It's like ducking into the punch of the pandemic. A second thing that is really critical here is suspending rents and mortgages and providing support to small landlords to make sure that banks and corporations are bearing the cost of housing at a time when our economies are shut down. There is a proposal to do exactly that. It was introduced by a member of the squad, Ilhan Omer from Minnesota. Nancy Pelosi is a wealthy landlord, a commercial landlord, who seems inclined in Congress to guard her own class interests. That proposal from Ilhan Omer is not one that Nancy Pelosi supports. In fact, even long before the pandemic, Nancy Pelosi has been an agent of eviscerating federal investment in affordable housing. We have an affordable housing crisis here in San Francisco going back for decades, the very particular decades that Nancy Pelosi represented us in Congress while federal spending and affordable housing was collapsing. Uh, on any number of other issues, paid sick leave, uh, we could talk about the racial inequities of the coronavirus and how that could be remedied in legislation, um, paycheck protection, and, uh, um, you know, several different ways, Nancy Pelosi. Maybe one last one I'd say here. Nancy Pelosi prioritized tax breaks for millionaires in the coronavirus stimulus relief packages, one of which entailed a $1.6 million average tax break each for 43,000 millionaires at the same time that she was authorizing one-time payments of $1,200 to some taxpayers. 
and an emergency UBI, at least on an emergency basis of $2,000 a month per person would do a lot not only to help people sleep at night and keep them in their homes, but also diminish the economic impact of a pandemic that could be the economic impact, at least largely preventable. Opposing militarism is a big part of your platform and cutting back military spending. Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer, surprisingly for some people, uh, has just signed on to a measure or proposal to cut the Pentagon budget by 10 percent. Does that go far enough, in your opinion? Schumer signed on for that? I, I, Schumer, I saw on Twitter Schumer express his support for that. Yeah. Huh. I've certainly never seen him. Uh, that's a sign to me of our movement's uh, momentum. Uh, 10% is certainly not where I want to end up. I mean, I would like to close the Pentagon ultimately. Our path to national security does not lie in arming ourselves, it lies in ensuring that other countries don't have a reason to hate us. And that's something that we've been entirely too unwilling to do over the last 70 years. We've frankly stoked anti-American sentiment around the world at every opportunity because we have perceived our national security as inhering in corporate resource extraction and facilitating human rights abuses. And I think if we stood for human rights and we stood for democracy and made that commitment real instead of just a rhetorical one that we violated at the drop of a hat to fill some corporation's pocket using the CIA as the iron fist of the invisible hand. I think that there are lots of opportunities for us to enhance national security by diverting spending from failed institutions. For instance, the Pentagon's lost track of $22 trillion. And just like when we say defund the police, what we want to do is put the money that we're wasting on these institutions, and again, trillions of dollars in the case of the Pentagon, and put them in solutions that will actually help. One of the national security needs that the Pentagon has identified our principal national security need before the pandemic was addressing the climate catastrophe. And how do we address that? We're not going to address that by hurling more money at the at weapons manufacturers and putting more money into the you know sort of sinkhole of the Defense Department. If anything, the way to address the climate crisis is through multilateral international investments in renewable energy projects. And that's not going to happen through DOD. So I would like to see us get well beyond 10 percent. I mean, I'd like to see us rechannel those resources entirely. I'm happy to start there as an initial measure, especially if the likes of which uh, of Senator Schumer are inclined to, to join us there. But I, I ultimately would like to move the goalposts much further than that. There are vast resources that the Pentagon wastes fraudulently that could be redeployed in the service of the American people. What is the hardest thing for you in going up against the country's most powerful Democrat inside her district? Talk about the challenges you face. The first and foremost, I'd say, is the false impression of her record. All of her supporters think that she is a lion of the left. And of course, she's anything but that. She is a tool of Wall Street who masquerades as, as a liberal champion. And she is put in that position by you know reams and reams of corporate propaganda. And so breaking through the myth of Nancy Pelosi to expose the reality of her record has been a real challenge. This is one reason why a debate would be quite illuminating, I think, for the district and the electorate, a vindicating opportunity for our democracy. Unfortunately, Nancy Pelosi hasn't shown up for a debate in 30 years, three zero. It has been a generation since she deigned to defend her record in public. And given her profound influence over federal policy and the vast disparity, both between the rhetoric surrounding her and the reality, and between the reality of her record 
and the preferences of this district. I think that the debate is increasingly critical, uh, and I'm looking forward to a news organization, hopefully one like the San Francisco Chronicle or perhaps CNN or The Hill, inviting that opportunity for the electorate to be informed about this difference. Again, the corporate spin around the speaker is probably our central challenge. There's another one related to it, which is separate from the uh, media impression and the public impression of her, but more related to her role as the party insider. So as the head of the corporate Democratic Party, she is in a position to both offer carrots and turn screws, which is to say that anyone with a partisan role is very constrained, uh, intimidated, coerced, you might say, from supporting us. And so that's basically denied us the support of many for instance, elected progressives in San Francisco who don't have the political space to cross the party leader. Uh, grassroots progressives have already broken for our campaign. Uh, people, even in the institutional establishment, who agree with our platform, uh, you know, any number of whom have told me that they voted for me and that they agree with our platform, don't feel the political space to say that they support us publicly. And that chilling effect that her role as the party boss imposes on what should be a democratic debate, especially for a party that calls itself the Democratic Party, uh, that chilling effect is an independent constraint on top of the misconstruction as to who the speaker is. Um, those are some of the challenges we confront. You know, another big one, sort of exogenous to, to the speaker herself, is the fact that we are living in an age of contagious pandemic, uh, which just, you know, really limits us from being able to get to the doors in the way that we'd like to. Bernie Sanders, he won the California primary. Now he's, of course, long gone from the Democratic race. But have you seen a spillover effect? Have you been able to tap into the energy of his movement, especially in a state where support for him is very widespread? Yeah, it's been remarkable and uh, palpable. I have so many feelings here. I mean, just first to make it clear, I shed tears when Bernie suspended his campaign, not only because I felt the hopes of a great many people uh, slip through our fingers, but also because our country needs his vision now more than ever. And with him off the field and not in the White House, the context for my first term in Congress shifts dramatically. I ran for Congress so I could help Bernie secure a Green New Deal, secure universal health care, and achieve the brighter future that we all want to see. And instead, whether it's a Biden administration or a Trump administration, I'm going to spend my first term in Congress fighting the White House from the left. And I'm, you know, as much as I would rather be effectuating the visionary agenda to keep the future safe, I'm very much here for the real resistance it will take to stop the fascism that has emerged through a bipartisan consensus in Washington. And I am, like many millions of Americans, thoroughly dissatisfied with the choices before us in November for the White House. And I think many people around the country, certainly thousands, tens of thousands, have come to see our race as an opportunity to vindicate our movement's principles and to advance our agenda, even if we don't have a shot at the White House. Another way of putting this is that I knew as soon as we won the primary in March, that because I have a foot in the door until November, that I'd be among the last voices from our movement standing in this electoral cycle. I didn't early on, however, anticipate how soon Bernie would suspend his campaign. Frankly, if he didn't suspend his campaign, I'm quite certain he would be the nominee, uh, if only because Biden keeps, you know, stumbling over himself. Uh, but with Bernie off the field, so many people have flocked to our campaign much sooner than I anticipated. And I'm very grateful for their support. Uh, the Not Me Us movement is one I'm proud to be a part of. I'm 
humbled by the opportunity to, to have a chance to help represent. And I'm eager to do that, not just as a voice, but also as a representative in Congress. You mentioned the resistance to Trump. A signature of the official resistance under leaders like Nancy Pelosi has been to challenge Trump via Russiagate. Nancy Pelosi herself even coined this signature aphorism, which she now repeats often, that all roads lead to Putin. Our adversary in this is Russia. All roads lead to Putin. That all roads lead to Russia. All roads lead to Putin. In terms of this president, all roads lead to, lead to Putin. All roads lead to Putin with him. Just as I've said to the president, with him, all roads lead to Putin. All roads lead to Putin. That's why I say all roads lead to Putin. As I've said over and over, with this president, all roads lead to Putin. And from the start, Democrats under Pelosi have prioritized Russia, whether it was via the Mueller investigation then in the impeachment, which targeted Trump because he briefly suspended weapons sales to Ukraine. And that was seen in the eyes of those who brought forward the case that was weakening our national security, quote unquote, against Russia. Recently, we had this scandal or this so-called scandal about the Russian bounties in Afghanistan. What do you make of Pelosi's approach to make Russia such a central part of the resistance? In lots of different ways, not just with respect to foreign policy and her impression of Russia, but in her impression, for instance, of fiscal austerity. In, in lots of different ways, Nancy Pelosi is very grounded in Reagan's America. And you see it very clearly here. The entire Democratic Party, frankly, is playing cards from a game that resolved itself 30 years ago. And in, I wouldn't say that no one cares. I would just put it this way. There are real threats to our republic. They certainly include our criminal president. To connect it to this idea of the interference with a foreign power, we already played that card in the impeachment charade that she oversaw last year. And it was unsuccessful. And I want to make the point, I don't say this as a Monday morning quarterback. Six months before she finally showed up for impeachment, I wrote the case in writing how to do it right. And the nation's leading authority on constitutional law backed me up and said, this is why we need to now pursue impeachment. And the point was, prosecute the president for emoluments violations. His self-enrichment at public expense is constitutionally prohibited. And here's the key. It's a bipartisan offense. It offends anyone who believes in democracy or good government or not having the president steal from their families. You don't have to be a Democrat to be outraged by corrupt politicians stealing from you. That's why an emoluments charge would have brought the president down. It's precisely what, Pre uh, what Speaker Pelosi refused to do. And by declining to pursue the strongest charges in the impeachment saga and limiting it to the invitation for foreign interference in a U.S. election. I want to be clear, that's a criminal act, but there's no way that gets any GOP votes in the Senate. And that was clear at the outset. And so, you know, she's pounding basically a horse that she already killed. Uh, and and when there was, you know, to try to stay within the metaphor, maybe there's a horse that, you know, we could have gotten on and, and gotten out of this barn on fire. Uh, but unfortunately, I'm so deep in this metaphor, I don't know my way out of it. But uh, Unfortunately, Nancy Pelosi has done entirely too many things to facilitate and enable our criminal president while mouthing so-called resistance. And every act of so-called resistance that her supporters point to as a reason to, to, to back Pelosi, ultimately it's just acts of theater, ripping up a speech at the end of an event that she gave the president an opportunity to, to have a campaign rally. 
in Congress. There's no reason after having impeachment that she would extend that invitation in the first place. But after giving him a national forum to have a campaign rally, she's applauded by self-described liberals for ripping up a speech. Do something helpful instead of, you know, same thing with the Justice and Policing Act. You know, she shows up in Congress after 20 years of legislating measures that have created the mass incarceration plague that we are trying to rid ourselves of. She shows up wearing kente cloth, kneeling in Congress, supporting a measure that includes the civil rights movement's demands from 10 years ago and falls vastly short of defunding the police. In fact, the Justice and Policing Act would expand police budgets and surveillance. And Pelosi wants credit for this. You know, I just see a legislator with immense power and influence who is unwilling to use it on behalf of her constituents or the Constitution. And I don't care if she's ineffective or if she's co-opted. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I've spent 20 years waiting for Nancy Pelosi to represent San Francisco sincerely in the face of rising fascism. And I'm done waiting. On that act she did of tearing up the speech during Trump's State of the Union, it was amazing to contrast that, that with what she did just moments earlier in the speech when Trump introduced Juan Guaido the uh, coup leader who Trump is trying to install as the new president of Venezuela, and Pelosi stood up and applauded with Trump. So the symbolism there is striking. Let me ask you about that. And she's done more than that. I mean, just to, to tease out your point, she appeared at a press conference alongside, alongside Guaido. I'm not sure if that was before or after the State of the Union. But and just to be clear here, Guaido is the beneficiary of a right-wing coup in a foreign country that fits a long-standing pattern of central intelligence agency interventions across the global south, particularly Latin America. And Bolsonaro, the beneficiary of a right-wing coup in Brazil, he was invited to speak at the CIA headquarters. There's also been a coup in Bolivia in the last year. So if three different Latin American countries have right-wing coups in them within the same year, and one of the leaders installed in the wake of it comes to Washington to give a speech at the CIA headquarters, and the other one has a press conference with the Speaker of the House. What does that say about the potential U.S. involvement in those events? The facts of which no one knows in public, largely because Nancy Pelosi in the House rules that she unilaterally sets as the Speaker of the House, the House rules deny every member of Congress with the hand the handful of exceptions that she particularly chooses denies every member of Congress any staff with security clearance, meaning that the, the documents that would prove whether or not the CIA was complicit in each of these right wing coups, which have sparked ecocides in every instance, whether or not the CIA was involved. Who knows? Nancy Pelosi knows she's the Speaker of the House, but the rest of us don't know. Congress doesn't know. And that's a constitutional problem with profound implications. And so I just wanted to, as long as you raise Guaido, and if we're putting the CIA on the table here, I would call into question the agency's record on torture, on drone strikes, on drug running. In the movement for black lives, I'm often called on to remind people that one of the reasons we have paramilitary police in the United States is because nobody held the CIA accountable when it was running crack cocaine into US cities and arming and equipping narco traffickers who were killing US police. Instead of doing anything to the CIA for creating the underground economy for crack cocaine, we put two and a half million black and brown Americans in prison where they are now legally enslaved. That's the story of mass incarceration. And it leads us right back to the very same agency and the very same pattern of unaccountability in which Nancy Pelosi is particularly implicated. There are some people who might object to the notion that the CIA directly or deliberately ran crack cocaine into the U.S. inner cities, although personally, I think it's 
quite plausible based oh, on, I, I, I think it's the agency admitted yeah. it. Uh, the agency admitted it in 1997. The inspector general admitted that the central findings of Dark Alliance, it's a book written by Gary Webb, a journalist, a renowned journalist who was repudiated in his time by his own publication, posthumously vindicated after he died of a suicide involving two gunshot wounds to the head. You want to tell me about the CIA's role in running crack cocaine into the U.S. after that? I mean, it's it's a it's a, a disturbing ball of yarn on which to tie. At minimum, they knew full well that the people they were working with in Central America were carrying cocaine on their planes. That's at minimum fact. And certainly a lot of what Gary Webb has reported reported indeed has borne out. I want to give you a chance to respond to some criticism you've gotten recently. Yasha Levine, who is a friend of mine and an author, he wrote a book called Surveillance Valley. And he took issue with your work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He maintains that the EFF is a basically an astroturf organization on behalf of Silicon Valley. And he wrote this about you, quote, he says nothing about regulating or changing Silicon Valley in a way that makes it more democratic or accountable to the public. Instead, he focuses exclusively on limiting government surveillance, unquote. Shahada, if you could respond to that from Yasha Levine. Maybe in two different dimensions. One response with respect to the description, I suppose, of my record, which is just factually inaccurate and any you know modicum of fact checking would expose. And then maybe a separate response with respect to EFF and how that organization has been characterized. I speak out and have spoken out quite explicitly about any number of corporate platforms, tech platforms in particular. Uh, it doesn't take um, any uh, energy to find it. <clears throat> for instance, Facebook, I've called for antitrust scrutiny of that company. I've, uh, we put out satirical ads, particularly addressing its invitation to falsehood in the political sphere by failing to fact check political advertisements. Uh, we've dinged Palantir, certainly, for being part of the surveillance industrial complex, have gotten gone after Amazon, both for that set of issues around surveillance capitalism, as well as its position vis-a-vis -vis its workers and public safety during the pandemic. Uh, the very same article you were describing played also fast and loose with the facts when describing my work defending Apple. Uh, you know, it very conveniently didn't describe that the context of that defense was defending the human right to encryption against an FBI attack on that principle that Apple Computer was defending in the spring of 2016. This was during an investigation into a terror attack, right? There was an incident in San Bernardino, California, and there was a phone that the FBI wanted to unlock. They were trying to force Apple Computer to hack not just that phone, but an entire platform of its user base, and Apple being committed to user privacy as a device manufacturer separate from a corporate online advertiser, which is a very different business model in Silicon Valley. Apple actually did the right thing here. Uh, they often take positions contrary to their users' rights in the context of like a right to repair or a right to own and control devices or software or content that people buy. And I've had to fight Apple in that context. But with respect to the human right to encryption and the right to anonymity in correspondence, private communications, they're, they took a leading role, and I was very proud to support the company then and, and glad to see Silicon Valley and the Internet user base as a whole defend that principle in the face of a still ongoing uh, government attack. In fact, there's a bill pending before the Senate at the moment, the Earn It Act, which would 
in the very same way that the FBI tried four years ago, would undermine encryption and basically give the government backdoor keys to any attempt among individuals to communicate privately. And I think that's a profound threat, not just to privacy, but just to be clear here, it's a profound threat to dissent. It's a threat to investigative journalism. It's a threat to whistleblowers. It's a threat to democratic transparency. And it is a threat ultimately to our democracy. We have to protect encryption, if only to protect dissidents, journalists, and whistleblowers. Uh, they can't inform the rest of us if they are subject to retaliation by the very same careerists whose uh, careers their revelations threaten. And I'm very committed to defending whistleblowers as well as the means through which they can alert the rest of us. And encryption is a vital tool in that box. We're going to wrap. So let me ask you finally, if you were to defeat Pelosi, what do you think that would mean for California and for the country overall and its direction going forward? I think that if, when we beat Pelosi this November, it will be a shot heard around the world because it will be the beginning of or the next step down the road of the liberation of the United States from corporate rule. Bernie 2016 was the jab and he found the face. We discovered that the American public by and large supports ending corporate rule. That was the consensus that emerged then and that there's any number of machinations that can prevent that consensus from finding expression in a presidential election. We've seen all of them from a cabal of corporate careers coalescing around one of them to prevent uh, the people's will from being heard. You know, basically, the Democratic Party announcing its greater willingness to lose to Trump than win with Bernie. Uh, that was this year. And of course, in 2016, it was a completely different set of uh, interventions that prevented the will of the people from being heard. But, but you know, I heard uh, the jab land in 2016. Ocasio-Cortez was the cross, and it landed too. And it proved very clearly uh, that even very powerful incumbents can be replaced. When we land the uppercut, we're talking about knocking out the bipartisan consensus on corporate rule, recovering a voice for working people in this country. And I'm so grateful to be a part of that movement. I'm excited uh, to stand on the shoulders of those who've come before and to see who comes after me to continue the wave into Congress to displace the failed generation that has delivered us to the brink of these multiple compounding crises and to breathe into the crumbling shell of the old, a new, brighter future. Shahid Buttar, running for Congress in California, challenging House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Shahid, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's good to be with you.